This is the Only in Miami show, sponsored by Morningside Mortgage Corporation of Bay Harbor Islands. Tonight's show is hosted by Grant Stern. Find out more about our sponsor at www.morningsidemortgage.com. That's www.morningsidemortgage.com. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co. iTunes, podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. Well, if you're driving and judging by the looks out the window from our lovely new studios in the Blue Lagoon, you probably are stuck in some traffic. Kick those shoes off, relax, because we have a great show planned for you tonight. We have three amazing guests. First, we do have Congressman Ted Deutsch. Congressman Deutsch has been representing Florida in the United States Congress for the last eight years. He's looking for another term in Florida's new 22nd district. It covers Fort Lauderdale and Boca Raton, and he will be joining us on the program in about 20 minutes or so. At the start of the hour, we have Richard Feinberg calling in about his book, which is, and he's going to be appearing at the Miami Book Fair International this November 13th through the 21st. He's going to call in and discuss Open for Business with us. It is a book about doing business in Cuba, and you're definitely going to want to stay tuned and hear about this one. Then at the back half of the hour, we have Kathy Salustri. She's going to call in and discuss her book, The Backroads of Florida, and Kathy's book, I cannot wait to discuss. I think I've been on at least at least half of these back roads. So there's going to be quizzes. It's going to be a lot of fun. Stay tuned to tonight's show. But first, this is the part of the program where I get a few minutes to speak directly with you, the listening audience, about issues of importance that affect us in all of Miami and sometimes beyond. And tonight, I would like to introduce our quick voters guide. We just published it to the website today, onlyinmiami.co. It's right there on the front page. You can't miss it. The 2016 Quick Voters Guide for Miami-Dade County Residents is out. And I'm going to go over it really briefly for our listening audience. Because there's a lot of questions besides just who do you want to vote for, for president or for senator or for state senate, state house. There's so many important down-ballot issues. But the ballot items always confuse people. Sometimes they can be very dense, and I'm going to go over them very, very quickly right here, right now. So if you are looking to vote, because, you know, early voting did just start today, and you can go to the polls anytime between today and November 8th to cast your vote, you do need to take a minute and consider this. So I'm going to help out. There are four Florida constitutional amendments. And I'm going to run through our endorsements very, very quick. No on one, yes on two, no on three, no on five. So to sum it up, in the Florida constitutional amendments, yes on two, no on everything else. Item one is a solar ballot initiative that the Miami Herald unmasked as nothing more than a wolf in sheep's clothing. It is a lobbyist's creation to ruin the potential for a solar industry 
in Florida, possibly forever. Vote no on one. That is no on one. Yes on two is all about health care. Simply, if you believe that doctors should be allowed to prescribe whatever medication they believe is fit for a problem, vote yes on two. No on three. There is a disability tax break that is being pushed onto the ballot. And it seems like a great idea, but this is yet another tax giveaway. There's, it's not a very specific tax giveaway. It could be ripe for abuse, ripe for fraud, ripe for people to use when they're disabled from being in service and some service jobs, but still able to work. So this becomes yet another tax giveaway that regular taxpayers will then pick up the tab for, and we should say no to three and no to five as well. Five is another very, very complex tax break for senior citizens. It's almost incomprehensible. And frankly, again, it's another tax break that somebody pays for that somebody is the rest of us. There are two county charter items and I'm going to tell you, you want to vote no on county charter special districts item and yes on county charter public records item. No, uh, no on the special districts means that the county will still be in the business of regulating the special taxation districts that uh, appear all over the county and they're used to collect tax dollars to make improvements. Absolutely vote no on the county charter item for special districts. It would give the city's regulatory power that they cannot handle. Yes on county charter public records question. Why? It will make public records access better in Miami-Dade County by basically giving more accountability to citizens. Vote yes on the public records question. Now, there are four questions in the city of Miami, and we're going to call it a day. Yes to all city of Miami charter questions. Yes on the Jackson House lease to the Dade Heritage Trust. They're a respected nonprofit. It will give them a long-term place in Miami, and we need them. We need them bad. Yes, on changing the runoff date uh, for uh, for elections for mayor and city commissioner. The commission asked for it. They say that it's supposed to help with scheduling. Let's give them a chance. Yes, on civilian investigative panel. Why? It will empower the city of Miami's civilian police oversight board. We like that. Yes. Yes, on charter amendment guaranteeing city will follow charter and allowing residents to enforce charter. Do I need to even say more than the actual title? The title does say it all. The city of Miami charter had a bizarre loophole that let the city get away with breaking its own charter in property that is publicly owned on the waterfront. It was a terrible loophole. It has caused nothing but grief to homeowners, to residents who care about the city of Miami. Vote yes on the charter amendment guaranteeing the city will follow the charter and allowing residents to enforce the charter. That is your quick guide to all of the ballot initiatives that are citywide for the city of Miami or countywide for Miami-Dade County and the state of Florida. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show.
Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co, iTunes, podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And we're back live with Richard Feinberg. He is a non-resident senior fellow at the Latin America Initiative at Brookings and a professor at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at the University of California, San Diego. Richard, thank you so much for joining us on the program tonight. Uh, Hi, Grant. Thanks so much for having me. So, Richard, tell our audience a little bit about your new book, Open for Business, Building the New Cuban Economy. Yes, well, thank you very much. Uh, So I wrote this book to help Americans, like your listeners, uh, to better understand the the drama that's unfolding on the ground in Cuba today. Uh, As an academic researcher, I was able to visit the island about a dozen times, speak to all sorts of people, uh, cuento propistas, that is to say the newly emerging private sector, uh, folks uh, who are executives in the foreign investment sector, not U.S., of course, because we're not allowed, uh, but Europeans, Canadians, Brazilians, who do have foreign investments there. And then I also made a point of talking to millennials in Cuba, people who will be the future of the island, uh, to answer the question, what do they want? Where do they think Cuba will be in 10 to 15 years? Yeah, the, you know, that's the, the big question. It's that the younger generation... Um, the younger generations in Cuba really have never been the focus of policy because we've all been always been so focused on Fidel Castro and really like people, I think, especially outside of Miami don't have much imagination for what those people are thinking about the future of Cuba. So what did they tell you? Exactly. That's precisely what I wanted to uh, try to find out and present uh, to the readers. So I interviewed uh, a dozen uh, millennials in Cuba, people who have chosen to stay there, obviously. Uh, And I came back very encouraged. They're intelligent, well-educated, alert, ambitious, uh, in many ways like American millennials in the sense that they're postponing having a larger family, uh, to first achieve professional success. They have a, have a cosmopolitan outlook. They want to travel. They want to benchmark their own successes and creativity against not just Cuban, but global standards. Uh, so uh, I came away quite encouraged. They think that in 10 to 20 years, Cuba will be a more normal country. And what do they mean by normal? They mean there'll be less obsession with you know the one or two Castro leaders, uh, power will be more decentralized to a, a more vibrant legislature, to more independent courts. So life will be more normal. Your average Cuban will be able to do what they want to achieve their own personal goals, as opposed to being driven uh, by political pressures. And well, not just political average- pressures, but it was actually central planning back in the That's day. Right. Yes, and they still have largely a centrally planned economy, uh, but the uh, and that started to change. And uh, as the Castro brothers fade from the scene, and as the su- successor generations move in, and as greater emphasis is placed on economic prosperity as opposed to political control, uh, the economy hopefully will pick up and will allow more opportunity. And the Cubans living on the island will be able to travel freely. And so if you're a film producer living in Havana and you want a gig in Los Angeles for a couple of months, you'll be able to go to Hollywood, do your film, but then return to your family and profession uh, in Havana or Santiago. So they're going to start giving more or less normal freedom of travel and transit and let people intermingle. It's, it's not going to be the Iron Curtain situation anymore. I think that's right. That's what 
what I'm reporting in my book is what the millennials in Cuba are telling me what they think will happen. And right. I think they're the best ones. They're the best ones to to make that call. Right. Rather it's not the government that's telling you that. This is just right. the people. I went around and and spoke with. I had lengthy, in-depth conversations uh, with a dozen millennials from many different professions: uh, a TV anchor, uh, a filmmaker, uh, an economist, academic, uh, someone who works uh, in real estate. All sorts of different uh, folks to get a general sense, but uh, artists as well. Uh, and this is what I came away with, uh, this general sense uh, of optimism. They can't tell you what's going to happen you know, in the next six months, but looking further down the road, uh, six years, 12 years, uh, they do expect a more normal uh, and more prosperous and hopefully and a happier uh, Cuba, a Cuba more open and more integrated to the world, and a Cuba that, of course, will be very close to Miami. Uh, we're already beginning to see this now with the... the, the uh, uh, commercial air flights that are picking up now from from Miami and Fort Lauderdale and Tampa. Uh, there'll be more and more of that. You'll gradually have cruise ships, uh, ferries that'll be able to take you back and forth in the course of an evening. Uh, a return to norm, normal, n- normalcy. Uh, that is what uh, Cuban millennials told me they anticipate uh, for Cuba. Well, that's that's really exciting to hear because one day those Cuban millennials will have a say in how the island is run, and the, the day is looking like it's approaching, right? That's right. Well, so um, Raul Castro has promised to step down in a year and a half. Uh, now, after him come a generation of bureaucrats in their 40s and 50s. Uh, we don't know that much about who these people are. Uh, they're survivors. We know that. They're fairly colorless. Uh, they're bureaucrats. They've gone along uh, to get along. Um, but they will be under pressure to produce. The older generation, you know, live off the, uh, the ethos and the myths of the revolution. Uh, these folks have to prove themselves. They have to gain legitimacy. The only way I can see them doing that is by loosening up, opening up, and creating more economic opportunity and prosperity. After that generation, the generation now in their 40s and 50s, uh, as they move on, then they will be challenged by the current millennial generation, uh, the truly modern, open, uh, energetic uh, generation that will be Cuba's future, without a doubt. It, it, it's going to be exciting to watch that happen. It will um, be very exciting. And I think you, what you will see uh, is closer and closer relations uh, between Miami uh, as a city, of course, the Cuban-American diaspora. Not all of them, but many of them will want to re-engage uh, back uh, at their homeland. There will be up economic opportunities and social opportunities. Uh, and many Cubans who are on the island, I think, will also be able to go back and forth. They'll have business here uh, in the United States, in Miami. They'll still maintain uh, their families and homes and businesses on the island. Uh, there'll be uh, trans, um, trans straits, if you will. Uh, that, I think, is the future of uh, Cuba and Miami, uh, looking further down the road. Yeah, I agree, and I can tell you that living in Miami, we're already starting to see it. Um, yeah. We're definitely starting to see a lot more uh, migration and you know people coming here permanently, part-time, um, you know, going up and back, uh, just things that you couldn't have imagined uh, 10 or 15 years ago. But I wanted to ask you one last question. What, what did you find, uh, how, how easy or difficult did you find it to access the Internet from Cuba today? Because it used to be a complete lockdown. The Internet was literally off limits for a long time. 
And now they're starting to open it up. So what kind of internet access did you find on your many trips to Cuba recently? Yeah, so my book is titled, you know, Open for Business, Building a New Cuban Economy, but uh, it's not fully open for business yet. Not yet. Uh, okay. Not yet. Uh, that's an aspiration rather than a reality today. Uh, uh, and one of the areas where it's certainly not fully open has to do with Internet access, still very limited. Now, as a tourist, you can go into certain hotels. Uh, these days you can buy uh, these Internet access cards, and you can hang out uh, in certain restaurants, and you can get reasonably decent Internet access uh, uh, as a foreigner. Uh, but your average Cuban, only maybe 5% or 10% of the population, has access to the international Internet. And, and even for those people, connections are often slow and uh, intermittent. Uh, this is crazy, of course. It's not that difficult to wire uh, an island the size of Cuba. The Cuban government is purposely delaying this. Uh, for what they consider their security reasons. They're obviously afraid at this point to give all Cubans uh, full and open access to the worldwide information that one accesses, of course, when you have access to a fully open, globalized Internet. Uh, that day has not yet arrived for your average Cuban. Cuban government is gradually opening up. The, the fellow who is likely to become the next president, uh, Diaz Canel, he has said he wants to uh, wire the island and open it up more fully to the global Internet. Uh, let's see if that actually happens when he uh, takes over in 2018. Uh, it's inevitable. Certainly, Cuba cannot remain uh, cut off from globalized information. Uh, individuals suffer, but the economy cannot move ahead, as President Obama really drove home that point when he visited the island last March. Uh, the Internet is absolutely a critical component uh, for economic prosperity in the 21st century. Uh, and many Cubans, particularly younger Cubans, fully recognize that, and they're demanding that the government give them a full and normal uh, access to the global internet. So, uh, Richard, do you have a website where people can find out more about your book, Open for Business, Building the New Cuban Economy? Yes, thanks for that. Uh, certainly you can go to uh, brookings.edu and you can search my name, Richard Feinberg, or simply search Cuba, and that will take you to uh, a website for my book, uh, Open for Business. Of course, you can, you can buy it in many bookstores in Miami, I know it's available uh, at Books and Books, for example, uh, or uh, you know via Amazon, or by or Barnes and Noble. And available. And for th those in our listening audience who would like to see you in person, live at the Miami Book Fair International, which is happening from November thirteenth through the twenty-first, when are you going to be there live? I would welcome uh, your listeners. I will be there on Saturday, November nineteenth at 3.30 in the afternoon. That's at the Miami-Dade College, the Wolfson campus. Uh, it's in room 7128 on building number 7. Uh, again, that's Saturday, November 19th at 3.30 p.m. Uh, welcome, everyone. Oh, yeah, open for business and open for visiting at the Miami Book Fair International. Richard Feinberg, thank you so much for joining us live on the program tonight. Thanks for the opportunity, Grant. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show.
Miami Show. And I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co. iTunes, podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And we're back with Congressman Ted Deutsch. He is running for Florida's 22nd Congressional District as a Democrat. Ted, thank you so much for joining us on the program tonight. Great to be with you. Thanks. So, Congressman Deutsch, tell our audience a little bit about the geographic area that you represent for Florida in the United States House. Sure. The the district that I'm running for re-election in runs from Fort Lauderdale uh, all the way up the coast uh, to Boca Raton and Highland Beach, and then across Broward County uh, through Pompano and, and Wilt Manors and Oakland Park over to... Uh, Coconut Creek and Margate, Parkland and Coral Springs. So it's a, a lot of Broward and, uh, and then a piece of Palm Beach County as well. So it sounds like you represent a lot of coastal areas in Florida, right? Uh, I do. I do. The whole coastline from Highland Beach down to Fort, down to and including Fort Lauderdale. Well, I wanted to ask you a few questions about the impact of climate change on Fort Lauderdale because down here in Miami, we actually talk about it a lot, but we really don't speak about what's going on in Fort Lauderdale, which is actually called the Venice of the Americas, are they feeling the same kind of impact from climate change that Miami Beach has been feeling? Uh, Sure, absolutely. In fact, uh, I was just recently down uh, in Fort Lauderdale on Las Olas, uh, right right during the the King Tide. And uh, we did an event, we had a discussion in someone's office uh, early in the morning it was a beautiful South Florida day, and from the moment we started our discussion until the moment we walked outside uh, to see what was happening, this was less than an hour, it went from being completely dry to, I'd say I walked out into about calf high, almost knee-deep knee uh, in water. And that's a direct result of what we're dealing with. We've got uh, climate change, which is leading to sea level rise. Sea level rise affects all of all of South Florida, uh, Miami Beach, and then uh, up to and, and definitely including Fort Lauderdale and all the way up the coast into Palm Beach County, uh, it's a real issue. And, and I'm I'm trying in Congress to to draw attention to the issue so that, that we can take some action in a bipartisan way to do something about it. Well, you know that's a big question that people ask me. What is the federal government doing about sea level rise? Because I've heard that they're contributing very little towards what Miami Beach is doing to fight sea level rise. Is Congress considering giving coastal communities money to help mitigate sea level rise and make these communities more resilient? Uh, right. So there, there are two things that I think Congress needs to, to do here. The first is short term, and that's, that's making sure that every time we talk about the need for infrastructure, and everybody loves to talk about that, Democrats, Republicans, Everyone knows that we have to invest in roads and, and our ports and airports, seaports, bridges. People get that. We need to make sure that those infrastructure discussions start uh, right now to include climate change and the effects of climate change uh, so that when local communities are taking action, whether it's uh, changing the, the drainage that they have, raising the roads, whatever the issue is, that that's something that Congress and the federal government values as an important infrastructure investment. My hope is that with the new administration, we're going to be able to 
to make those kinds of investments. So that's one, short term. Longer term, Congress has to be willing to, to tackle climate change and to look at ways to, to uh, prevent it from getting worse. And that's something that our uh, bipartisan Climate Solutions Caucus has been working on to look at climate change from uh, not just an environmental issue, but an economic issue, a national security issue, uh, a business issue. These are, these are uh, important issues that everyone else seems to be dealing with. It's about time that Congress focuses on the most as well. Well, President Obama directed our government uh, and uh, diplomatically to sign the Paris Accord. And very recently, it didn't get very much attention compared to Paris, but there was another treaty amendment in Kigali. Um, yep. Do you think that the government will continue to seek reductions in carbon and clean energy improvements if we choose a Democrat, and do you think that it will be the same if voters choose Republican representatives? Um, well, I'll answer that two ways. At the at the top of the ticket in the in the executive branch, the president, it makes a real difference. Uh, and we have Hillary Clinton, Secretary Clinton, who has uh, really led the fight uh, to address climate change internationally, both as Secretary of State. Um, it's an issue that she's, she's focused on for a long time. And, and then Donald Trump, who's the Republican nominee, still isn't quite sure that we really have, done, have had any impact. We, um, man, has had any impact on, on climate change and whether men and women can do anything to stop it. So, yeah, there's a big difference. If, if Secretary Clinton's elected, there'll be a, a, a serious effort to work with the international community uh, to help ensure that we lead the way in addressing climate change and help our economy enormously. That's that. At the congressional level, uh, there is bipartisan support, certainly in South Florida, uh, for doing something to address climate change because we're on the front lines. And so my colleagues from Miami-Dade County and, and Broward and Palm Beach, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, for the most part, they understand that we can't afford to, to put our head in the sand here because the sand, frankly, is, is our beach and the water is encroaching. So we've got to do something about it. If we have a, a Democratic president, Hillary Clinton, who's focused on it, and a Congress that continues to focus on it, we'll be able to get something done. Well, let's talk about a different issue that's impacting sure. every single Floridian. And I don't think it's getting the full attention of people, even though it's just as an important a race as the very top of the ticket, and that's Florida's Senate race. What's your opinion of the state of the race between Democrat Patrick Murphy and his Republican opponent, Marco Rubio? Uh, I think it's a very close race, and we've seen it, it's not just a question of looking at all the polls and then figuring out what the numbers are generally. It's really just a question of what direction the numbers are moving. And as Donald Trump has continued to make statements that are, are just so hard for people in Florida to accept, uh, not just the, the demeaning way that he's talked about women and Hispanics and Muslims and Jews and people with disabilities, and even putting those aside. In the last debate, when Donald Trump went after the men and women who serve in so many ways in our intelligence community, trying to keep our community safe, and said that they don't know what they're doing, and just as he said that he knows more than the generals, in a state like Florida with so many veterans and, and people who uh, who are uh, military families today, that kind of talk 
uh, has caused an awful lot of people to, to turn away, Republicans and independents, to turn away from Trump. And as that's happened, they then look at the Senate race and realize that Marco Rubio continues to support Trump. He He's a, a senator who, when he ran for president, had the worst things to say about Trump, but still won't walk away from him. Uh, and has told us over and over that he doesn't really like being in the Senate. So I, I think you're seeing momentum build for Patrick Murphy. I think he, he's going to be a great U.S. senator. And I think it's going to be really hard for Marco to, to, to uh, survive and get reelected when he doesn't really want to be there to begin with. And he continues to endorse someone that, that he's criticized as much as anyone. Well, do you really believe Senator Rubio when he says that he will serve out his six-year term when he wouldn't actually say that until just a few days ago? Uh, well, Senator Rubio said when he announced that he was running for president that at, come January of 2017, he's either going to be president or he's going to be a civilian. He didn't want to fall back to the Senate. And then he spent the entire campaign talking about how much he doesn't like being in the Senate. And he tweeted he about it. <laughs> he tweeted yeah, about it, he, too. Right. Yeah, then he nevertheless said that he was running for re-election but couldn't commit to serve out six years because he clearly sees it as the only way that he'll be able to run for president again because that's his personal ambition is more important to him than the people of Florida. So only the only time he was willing to finally come out and say, well, sure, I'll do it, God willing, which he needed to put in there in, in case, like, I guess, living himself and out if God tells him to run for president, right? I mean, <laughs> he, he doesn't yeah. – He's not committed to the job, and he's not committed to the people of Florida, and he missed more votes than, than anyone in recent history. Um, I think all of that is what people really hate about politics and politicians, and, and that's why, that's why I'm, I'm confident that the Patrick Murphy is moving in the right direction and will be a great senator for Florida. Well, you, you serve in Congress with Representative Murphy. Um, so, I, you know, let's talk about one of the issues that um, – you know, is a very big distinguishing issue between Representative Murphy and, and Senator uh, Rubio. And, and I think it's very ironic because Senator Rubio said after the Pulse nightclub tragedy that that is what propelled him to get back into the race. But Senator Rubio opposes gun control and he's not very friendly towards the LGBT community. How do you think Patrick Murphy would handle gun control issues if elected as the Democratic senator from Florida? Well, I'm saying he's he's not he's, he's not um, so friendly to the LGBT community as putting it mildly. I think, and um, and, and Patrick's a strong believer in, in marriage equality, and um, and has been a great ally to the LGBT community. But on uh, you're right, we had the worst mass shooting in our nation's history uh, at a, a a gay nightclub in Orlando, and and coming out of that, uh, we could we had the opportunity. To actually do something to, to honor the the memories of the people who were slaughtered that night, we could have moved forward with legislation, just common sense legislation, to to make sure that we keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people. To make sure that if you're if you're on the terror watch list because you're too dangerous to get on a plane, that you shouldn't be able to go into a gun store and walk out with a semi-automatic assault rifle. And Patrick's been very strong in in saying that that's the kind of common-sense approach that, that we ought to take, that we need to take. And, uh, and he's, he's spoken to the families, and he knows the heartache, and he knows that Congress has to act. And Marco, unfortunately, Senator Rubio, is so beholden to the gun manufacturers 
that he's letting that uh, he's letting that take priority over the the interests of the people of Florida and the overwhelming majority of people who think that common sense gun safety legislation is needed now more than ever. And we're going to take a really short break for traffic and play the rest of the interview with Congressman Ted Deutsch. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. The biz time saver traffic 95 northbound slope from the 112 up past 151st and earlier accident cleared on 95 southbound you may see some delays or after miami gardens drive and in fort lauderdale we have an accident 95 southbound between commercial boulevard and oakland park boulevard that's your south florida traffic Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show. And I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co. iTunes, podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And let's play the rest of our interview with Democratic Congressman uh, Ted Deutsch. He is running for District 22 in Fort Lauderdale and Boca Raton. So one last question. I'll make it a short one because sure. I know that you've got a lot of events on the campaign trail. Do you believe that Republicans in the House of Representatives and specifically uh, senior Florida delegation Republican Ileana ross Layton did a good job obtaining funding for the Zika virus? Or do you think that they took way too long and it's impacted Florida's economy, our tourist economy, in a negative way? Oh, listen, I think that the... The Republican leadership in the House uh, kind of dragged their feet for months after the president consulted with the experts, came up with a, a figure of what we needed to address this public, this urgent public health matter, and and unfortunately, too many of our Republican colleagues, uh, you know, our Republican colleagues from South Florida, who who understood the need for Zika funding, weren't able to convince their colleagues from other parts of the country from making this about about politics about planned parenthood about confederate flags and veteran cemeteries uh the republican leadership really failed the people of florida on zika funding and um uh, i'm glad we were finally able to to do it but but the delay really hurt and uh, and we should expect more from the republican leadership in the house I, I just want to read this because it really shocked me when I saw it. The Miami Herald endorsed uh, Congressman Ross Leighton and said that she did a strong job securing federal Zika fighting funds. Do you just agree or disagree with that statement? Well, I think I think Congressman Ross Leighton uh, and our colleagues from from South Florida, Republicans from all of Florida, Republicans and Democrats alike, understood the need for. Uh, for Zika funding and, and advocated for Zika funding. The problem is that the Republican leadership in the House uh, wouldn't wouldn't listen to what they were saying and continued to make it as more about uh, about protect protect or attacking women's health is really what their goal was uh, than providing Zika funding, and that's what was so disappointing. 
Well, Congressman Deutsch, thank you so much for taking the time to join me tonight. Um, would you like to give out some contact information so voters and those who are interested in finding out more can contact you online or find you on Twitter? Sure. Uh, they, can, they can follow on Twitter at Rep. Ted Deutsch. Uh, they can find out information about the campaign at Deutsch for Congress uh, and, um, and both the campaign and, and uh, uh, our official accounts are, are on Facebook and we post lots of information. I encourage people to, to, to sign on and, and follow along. Uh, occasionally put up some pretty good Instagrams too. Uh, so hopefully they'll follow everything, uh, all of them. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us on the program tonight. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co, iTunes, Podcasts, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And today we actually just released our voter guide, our quick voter guide for all of Miami-Dade County residents. This is just on the ballot initiatives, Florida ballot initiatives, Miami-Dade County ballot initiatives. City of Miami ballot initiatives and Miami Beach ballot initiatives. It's the quick voter guide. Go to onlyinmiami.co. Check it out oh, oh, uh, and vote early. Do not vote often, just vote early. But check it out at onlyinmiami.co. That's why we put it there for you. Kathy, are you there with us? I am. How are you doing? This is Kathy Salustri. Thank you so much for joining us on the program tonight. Thanks for having me. So, you wrote the book, Backroads of Florida. Tell our audience a little bit about Backroads of Florida and why you're going to be at the Miami Book Fair International November 13th through the 21st. Uh, well, uh, Backroads of Backroads of Paradise came about because I found a copy of the WPA's Guide to the Southernmost State. Uh, during the Depression, part of the Work Progress Administration was Federal One, which took care of artists, essentially. And one of the projects was they took out-of-work writers, and they say that's writers who had no money and no prospects. And I always say, well, that's basically all that's writers. That's all writers anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and they uh, commissioned them to create a series of driving tours for every state. Now, in Florida, 
We were incredibly lucky because one of those writers was Zora Neale Hurston. Uh, another one of the writers was Stetson Kennedy, who was just an amazing folklorist. Well, they uh, created these guides, and the front half is mostly almanac information, but the back half was 22 driving tours of Florida's main roads. And what was so cool was that um, once we built the interstates, these roads all became back roads. They didn't become anything like they were. They weren't the way you traveled into Florida. It wasn't the way if you wanted to go from... Well, if you wanted to go fast. Right, right. So they all pretty much became commuter roads. And I was really a little obsessed about what happened to them and what would happen if you tried to drive them the way the WPA suggested in the 30s. So I... Okay. So you retraced the steps. I did. I spent a month with my boyfriend and our dog in a 21-foot camper van, and we put about 5,000 miles on that van retracing those roads. That sounds like a lot of fun. So did you manage to make it and I'm, uh, this is a quiz, by the way. Did you manage to make it to the one back road that probably everybody has seen and nobody knows, but it's got some of the world's most amazing planned communities? Which one is it? Uh, amazing as, as in, in good? Uh, as in good, not amazing as in, you know, Florida man. <laughs> uh, you know, this is a quiz. I, I'm thinking of all these different communities and you're I'll, give have you, to I'll give you a hint more. the Truman Show oh yes absolutely I did that's US 98 and I'll, I'll tell you why I don't think of those as a planned community uh, when you're talking about the Truman Show you're of course talking about Seaside up that's in right the Seaside Florida when we were in Seaside we started talking well this is what I did it's not a lot of fun to travel with me if you don't talk to people because it's all I do (laughs) I started talking to the wait staff at one of the pizza places in Seaside because you know wait staff when you're traveling they give you the best picture of an area and I found out that according to our waiter uh, only one person lives in Seaside full-time really that's it (laughs) now I don't know if he was being overly dramatic for effect or perhaps hmm. a tip, uh, but, you know, I have since there was a great article in Garden and Gun from a woman who spent some time there, and sure enough, it was a vacation home. And they <laughs> are, uh, they're beautiful. And so when oh, you yeah. say a planned community, I don't, I don't think of seaside and watercolor and things like that because they're not always full-time homes. But my God, that is... That's chapter one in the book, US 98. And I'll tell you what, I ate my way across that road. (laughs) It's easy to do. Very, very easy to do, especially in Apalachicola. Oh, the oysters. I enjoy oysters so very much. And I just, you know, people who come from up north and they don't understand the beauty of a Florida oyster, there's just something amazing. And I was down at the Keys a few years ago and we were... I, I'm not going to say the name of the place, and they were bragging about all these oysters, and they had the origin of the oysters on a chalkboard, and none of them were from Florida, and we turned around and walked out. Aww. So, yeah, we there's the, we stopped it up the Creek Raw Bar and Boss Oyster there. It was, it was a phenomenal gluttonous trip. <laughs> <laughs> I bet, I bet. As you can probably tell, I have spent a little bit of time on Highway 98 myself. Um, at Carabelle, where they have the world's smallest uh, police station and <laughs> a very nice beach. Um, 
it's it's really very scenic and i think a lot of floridians have not been there yet um let's talk about another one of your favorite back roads because there's a lot of them in the middle of the state they're all my favorites okay it's like it's like asking me to to pick a favorite cheese or a favorite (laughs) child i can't do it um every time i'm on a road i say oh my god this is my favorite so which one did you want to talk about though oh there's so many of them but let's talk about well how okay us 27 is a very 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 long highway it actually begins in miami and traverses the state and goes all the way north to tallahassee and and then continues north um so let's talk about some of your favorite spots on us 27 because that is one epic highway road that really takes you from one part of the state to the next it is a a tremendous road now i do want to say we were trying to I was trying to stay true to the WPA tours, okay. and US, US 27 didn't go much oh. past Ocala uh, in this tour, and okay. it, it wasn't necessarily, I'd have to check my notes, some of these roads weren't called by the same number in the 30s. Uh, so we basically right. traveled from Ocala to Lake Okeechobee on 27, but... Um, I, you know, one of my favorite things to do off US 27 is I like to drive the ridge. I like to, um, if people don't realize that we have mountains in Florida, and we do, like Wales Ridge, um, you can go off US 27 through the citrus groves and go up a little hill because this is one of the highest points in the peninsula. That's right. We're all going to have to move there one day. Well, we are. Scientists say. We are, probably, but, uh, you know, until then, we've got a pretty good life. But I like to go there. I like to go into any other. I like to go in the Peace River off US-27 because it's one of the inland rivers where you can find shark's teeth because it used to be beachfront. And uh, <laughs> so you will find fossilized shark's teeth and dolphin ear bones, and other people have been lucky enough to pull mastodons out of there, but I, I've never done that. Neither um, have I. <laughs> I like uh, any of the citrus. You know, any any place you go, we stopped at the Citrus Tower and rode it to the top in Claremont, uh, US 27. We went to the Lake Ridge Winery, which um, Florida makes some wonderful rum. Okay. And we stopped at the winery. So <laughs> I'm not a I'm not a huge fan of Muscadine wine, but they do make a nice port and they have the vineyards there. So. Well, you know, when you're talking about Lake Wales, there's only one place I think about, and that's the Bach Tower. Bach Tower Gardens. Yeah. That was, um, you know, Lake Wales in September is uh, very different because they have some citrus packing there. And you drive through it, and there's just nothing happening. And we went through in September. But Lake Wales, you know, I always think of Chalet Suzanne. I don't know. It's closed now, I believe. But it used to be the restaurant at the airport there. Huh. And they had soup. You could buy all kinds of soup. That was their claim to fame. Interesting. Again, well, very food-centric. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what's another good road for foodies to travel uh, in Florida that we haven't heard of before? That, that we haven't heard of? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, honestly, US-98, like I said, is tremendous. Um, if you really, really want to enjoy some food, though, and some interesting uh, types of different types of food, I tell people that you should always take US-41. And US-41 was my Everest on this trip because okay. it was the last chapter I wrote. It's not the last chapter in the book. I didn't know how to make it into one chapter, and that was what the publisher wanted. Because <laughs> wow. you start up at the top of the state with US-41, and as you drive down, it's just um, it, it's everything. So oh, sure. 
US 41, you get close enough, you can get some seafood in parts. US 41, as you go up north, you're going to get um, freshwater shrimp. You can find uh, Tupelo honey, which is really a neat thing. You can find Mayha jelly. It's really got these different things that maybe you don't associate with Florida, or in the case of Mayha jelly, a lot of people don't even know what it is. That's right. Um, what is Mayha jelly? I've Mayha. eaten it, but what the heck is that stuff? It, 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 it looks like a cranberry. Right. It tastes nothing like a cranberry. It doesn't. And they actually grow, Mayha trees grow as far south as Volusia County or Daytona Beach, but they don't, um, they're not as prolific, I guess, as they are over towards the western edge of the state, or the western middle of the state, if you will, if you're considering the, the panhandle. And they grow in low-lying, boggy areas. I sure. mean, so it makes sense that it's going to be in the same area where we have a lot of tupelo trees, because tupelo trees um, produce the honey. Right. And they're out in the swamp, and that's why it's such a unique honey, is it's called monofloral. Um, there's really nothing else for the bees to pollinate there or collect nectar from, so... Oh, okay. That's why Tupelo has such a distinct taste. Interesting. Um, so no Mayha jelly, yeah, also in the swampy areas, but if it gets too hot, they won't grow. Well, there's so. another culinary stop on US 41, I hope, that you visited, which is uh, Everglades City. Oh, well, yes, that's actually a whole chapter. Naples to Miami on 41 is its own chapter because the guide writers even made it its own chapter in the 30s. That's amazing um, because, you know, when you talk about a culinary experience, there's nothing better than going and getting the freshest stone crab in all of Florida, and it's in season finally. It's it's stone crab. I just had stone crab Saturday, and uh, it was, oh, it's so nice. And you know, US forty or forty one through that whole stretch, even Joni's blue crab. If if you can catch Joni's when they're open, I've yet to figure out what their actual hours are. Um, if if you've ever. I assume you've driven it if you've been through Everglades City. Um, oh, but yeah. all the seafood places that you can get, the marinas, I always find, I always tell people, you know, if I don't know an area, I'll say find a marina and buy your seafood there because they're not going to steer you wrong. And, it, and it's a rare time where I found a marina that didn't have locally caught seafood. And they have a great marina there. Um, you know, we went for a uh, boat ride. A friend of mine is related to Touch Brown because everybody who's lived in Florida long enough is apparently related to Touch Brown. So <laughs> uh, we, we did a boat ride down there on the airboats and then we had to eat all the things, which became a theme. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, Tampa itself is on 41. Did, did the guide writers write about Tampa? You know, what was interesting is they wrote about Ebor, but they didn't write as much as you would think. The things that we think of as being our main population centers now, Orlando, Tampa, Miami, uh, first of all, weren't as heavily populated in the 30s. And sure. here's my turn to quiz you. Do you know why? Um, because it was a hazardous place with mosquito-borne illnesses that could kill you. Yes. Well, that's still a hazardous place. <laughs> What's <mosquito -borne>? changed? <laughs> um, we have air conditioning now. Air conditioning, sure. We didn't have air conditioning, so uh, our population... So that's why uh, Tallahassee is the capital that it is, because at the time it was halfway between the two largest population centers, and that would be uh, Pensacola and St. Augustine. And, and I can tell you, air conditioning or not, Tallahassee is not very habitable. So Tallahassee that's is an interesting place. <laughs> um, it, it, it was a challenge every time we went through it. So, And, and, and as a result, the uh, book, 
when we talk about Tampa, there's a little bit about Ebor, which is actually cool. where I work. I work in an old cigar factory, so there was some of that. But in talking about Tampa, I talked more about the uh, tomato farms in Ruskin and some of the outlying areas, which was kind of neat. Yeah, well, Ebor City has a very rich history. I mean, it's really the oldest part of Tampa. Um, that's that's where the first Cubans that came to Florida as permanent residents settled. Well, and I, you know, like I said, I'm I'm sitting in an old cigar factory right now at work. I'm the last one here. Um, if I scream, it's because our lights are on a motion sensor and I haven't <laughs> moved. Um, and it is an old brick building, but everything here is an old brick building. And I never, yeah, I grew up. 40 minutes from Ebor, and I, I maybe came here once or twice in college, and then I started working here this year, and it's just an amazing, an amazing city. I didn't realize across the street from my office is Cuban soil, like Cuban-owned soil. The government owns it, which you don't think about, but that's there's crazy. Jose Marti Park. Yeah. Um, yeah. We have a very strong heritage here that's tied to Cuba. Very proud that we helped plan the revolution. Not as proud that it worked out the way it did. Uh, <laughs> and acceptably close to the Columbia restaurant, the gem of restaurants. We are very close to the Columbia restaurant and all the other restaurants that family owns. Oh, my um, gosh. I love that restaurant. You know what my favorite Cuban restaurant is, though, in Florida? Which one? Denny's um, on, A1, on US1 in Key Largo right by the radio signal tower. It is. It's not. A, it's not a franchise Denny's. Have you ever been down there? I have been down there, but not to Denny's. Nobody ever stops, and it is tremendous. We always. We're never driving into the Keys the right time to get breakfast, but I always stop on the way out, and it's just beautiful, beautiful Cuban food, wonderful coffee. Well, and the it, next time, favorite place. The next time I'm there, I'll have to check it out. Kathy, do you have a website that you can share with our audience? So they can find out I, more. I do. My website is greatfloridaroadtrip.com. That's www.greatfloridaroadtrip.com. Kathy, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. I really appreciate it. All right. It. Well, I hope I see you when I'm uh, speaking at the Miami Book Fair next month. Definitely give me a heads up. And for all of our audience, the book fair is going to be November 13th through the 21st at Miami Dade's Wolfson Campus. Check it out. And we'll be back next Monday night with an interview of Florida Senator and former Governor Bob Graham. This is the Only in Miami show.